The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Super Abled Edition. It's Wednesday, August 14th, 2019. On today's show, The Nightingale is the latest film from Jennifer Kent. It's the follow-up to her horror sensation, The Babadook. This one is an unsparing, really brutal look at the colonial origins of modern Australia. And then The Boys is a wickedly dark satire on the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, but also really on the hyper-commercialization of everything, superheroes in particular. And finally, an absolute giant, Toni Morrison, Nobel laureate, one of America's greatest novelists and public intellectuals has died. We examine a monumental legacy with Sarah Jackson, who is professor at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania. Joining me today is Aisha Harris, uh, a culture editor at the New York Times. Aisha, welcome back to the show. Hello. It's great to be back. Thank you. Gabe Roth, who is, I think, best described as the boss of me. I am, in fact, the boss of you, Steve, so uh, please stay in line. Thanks for having me. So you really are filling in for Julia Turner then? I I, I absolutely am, and uh, I will do my best. I haven't had a boot stamping on my face in a long time um, while we record this show, so it really feels like old times, the warm sensation of the tread on my uh, eye socket. Uh, see if you listeners can can hear the squelching of of my boot on on Steve's eye socket over the course of this episode. This uh, is very apt for our nightingale conversation. <laughs> I, I know. Oh my gosh, oh, I got there really quickly. All right, I should say I've got uh, summer cold number two. So apologies for my voice. All right, shall we dive in with uh, the nightingale? Claire is an Irish woman, and as such, she is a subject of the British Empire. When we meet her. She's been banished to Van Diemen's Land, to what is now known as Tasmania, the darkest outpost uh, then of New South Wales, which was now better known as Australia. There she suffers brutality at the hands of her penal overlords. So much brutality, in fact, she sets off on an improbable journey in search of revenge on the British officers who have destroyed her life. To survive in the bush, though, she must bring with her Billy, an aboriginal tracker. What follows is a journey to the heart of an absolute darkness uh, of racism and misogynistic sadism. It is a very intense film from Jennifer Kent. She of The Babadook. It stars Eileen Franciosi as Claire and Baikali Ganambar. I hope I have pronounced that right as Billy. He, they're both remarkable. Let's listen to a clip. Bloody dangerous riding with that. Blow your head off. You need to move. Move, boy! Wait, will ya? Wait! Go the wrong way if you want. Them soldiers went this way. Aisha, let me start with you. This film is nothing if not unflinching. It's hard uh, to watch without flinching oneself. Um... Filmgoers have now infamously walked out of screenings. They find it simply too brutal. I'm very curious to know what you made of this movie. Um, Brutal is definitely, I think, the first word that comes to my mind. And I did find myself watching this film a lot of times looking at staring at the corner of the screens. <laughs> so, you know, to avoid having to the moments when you think something terrible is going to happen and often it usually does. Um, it I had to sort of avert my eyes a lot. Um, but 
I have very mixed feelings about this, and I'm still trying to process it because I I saw the the movie now the day we're recording this just two days ago, so it's still fresh in my mind. But I'm also still working through my thoughts on it, and I came out of it wanting to read some Aboriginal writers on this movie, just because I think so much of the conversation around this this movie has been about the very um, unflinching. Uh, rape scenes and the violence against women, especially, but also the Aboriginal characters in the movie. But so much of the the ups, the rage has been about the rape and not so much the um, the way in which this story, in my opinion, sort of posits a weird equivalence between what the lead character. Claire uh, goes through and what her um, her guide um, Billy goes through and Billy is the Aboriginal character and so it, it felt like a weird sort of attempt to make these stories seem similar and one and the same when I think we're dealing with two very different uh, experiences two different things and I I googled so far, I've not been able to find any Aboriginal writers who have written about this. If there are, I would love if like listeners could send them our way. Um, I put out a tweet. Uh, I call put out a call it on Twitter, and I got crickets. <laughs> so um, I really want to. I want to know what what they think of this because obviously I am not Aboriginal, and a lot of the information in this movie that I know Jennifer Kent like did so much research and did actually have like an advisor and and input from people in the Aboriginal community. Um, but I would love to to hear from someone who had nothing to do with this film um, about what they make of it. So there's kind of two angles of criticism for this movie. Um, one is, um, uh, as Aisha said, is originates in a you know I, I mean it's almost it's unlikely to go see this movie without knowing you are going to. In fact, I don't think you should go see this movie not knowing that you're going to witness an absolutely brutal rape. In fact, more than one, but one in particular that's as gruesome as anything that I've ever seen on screen. And so from one angle comes the criticism that the movie is is too brutal somehow. Um, and from the other angle comes the criticism that I think Aisha is getting at a little bit, which is that it's the green book. Um, you know, it's, or it has some of the problems of, of not exactly white savior and the noble. Let, let's just say that white savior and white savior and noble savage are, stereotypes that are present in the film in some respect um what do you make of this wild cinematic experience yeah it's really interesting and i i think the fact that like a few minutes into this discussion we've already there's so much complex material that's come up from what both of you have just said i i, I think this is a movie that while I was watching it, it felt at first very sort of dramatically straightforward. It's it, it, it although as you guys have said, there are some there's some very difficult material that's often hard to watch and hard to stomach. It it feels for most of its runtime, it feels like a genre movie. It feels like a western. There's there's mm -hmm. characters chasing one another through a frontier kind of setting in in a way that it, it's not difficult to follow or to understand the action. Uh, it it doesn't feel a obscure at all. Uh, and, and yet the material and the, the ways in which the, the setting and the, the material uh, is, is unfamiliar, at least to me as an American viewer, uh, it, it brings up a lot of interesting and complicated stuff that I think the movie probably doesn't resolve successfully. 
Um, you, you both, I think, described this movie as unflinching, and it's certainly true that it shows us things that are difficult to look at. It shows us the, the, the rape scenes are, are hard to watch, although what we see mostly is, is the face of the character who's being raped. That, in a way, makes it harder to watch. Uh, there are also just horrible images of violence against the bodies of Aboriginal people, which uh, I, I found almost more difficult or at least as difficult to stomach as, as the rape scenes. At the same time, I think there are a couple of ways in which the movie does flinch from the substance of the story that it's telling. Aisha was sort of getting at this. The movie brings together a lot of the horrors perpetuated by English colonial rule. Right, violence against women and violence against Irish people and violence against uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous people. All of it is sort of grouped together as part of the same horror uh, committed by the, uh, the British Empire, and and that's you know that that that's complicated. That's a complicated thing to do. And then there's one scene about two thirds of the way through in which we meet a, a an Englishman who is nice. Who's nice to the? As soon as that came up, I was like, "Oh my!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, no, but like that—that no. that was the the point where it, it felt like it tiptoed into the green book territory. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think it's at all. I think it's to even. I think the only reason we're really throwing that title out there is just because it's like close in our memory. It just won <laughs> Best Picture. Um, but I, I, when that character showed up. It, it fell into the trap of every movie like this, no matter how good their intentions are, where there has to be one decent white mm-hmm. <laughs> male I, character. A, as an Anglo-American white person watching this movie, I had the experience of feeling just extremely powerfully uncomfortable for most of the length of the movie in a way that I think was was productive and part of the filmmaker's intention. And then that scene happens. There's a benevolent Englishman with a northern accent who who invites the Aboriginal character Billy to join them at the table for a meal. Whose wife is still racist. Why, she, keeps, sure. she keeps giving him like sure. dart like and, eyes. But. And 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 watching that scene, I, I first I felt a kind of relief. Like, oh look, I could be that guy. That's the guy I would have been if I had been back there. And I think that's a flinch. I think that's mm-hmm. the movie flinching from from Whoa. what it's trying to show us. Let let me push back on both of you because uh, I that scene stuck out. It's not, it sticks out in the movie. You're going to notice that it's the one person, uh, the one white colonial colonialist, colonialist who stands forth as something other than a complete moral sadist. Um, and um, I too, Gabe, like you, as an Anglo, you know, American male viewer latched onto him as a oasis in the film and then of course reflected on that and hated myself even more deeply for doing it but there's a remarkable things thing that happens at the end of the scene she knows exactly what she's doing in that scene it's the final humiliation of billy that breaks him down it's the one scene in the movie where he begins to weep because he's been forced into the position of having to recognize the quote unquote extraordinary heroic benevolence of this white character for simply allowing him to eat at the same table. And I think in that scene, he says, maybe in his Aboriginal language, I can't remember, but he says, this is my country. Like, I'm supposed to feel, be overwhelmed with gratitude towards you, finally lifting me up to eye level and letting me eat the food you've cooked. I'm supposed to regard you as a Christ-like figure. Fuck you. I thought that was actually one of the moments where the movie was really in control of something like a serious moral 
ambiguity. Yes, I have a different reading of Billy's breaking down of that scene, which I should be clear that, that Steve's monologue just there is not the monologue that the character speaks. That was, I think, your gloss on that scene. And I, I, I read it a little differently. I saw it as the, the, the being treated with humanity and empathy sort of opens oh, him up to emotion in a way that no, I, I found I really, sort of fake. I really, I really disagree. I think it's just an absolute moment of complete humiliation for him. Aisha, I, I resolve really this for us. You know, I, I, in, in, I had forgotten about that moment. Uh, I think because what comes before it just sort of uh, clouded, like just c- cast a pall over that whole scene for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess if now recalling it, I can see Steve's interpretation. I also just still don't understand what that scene is doing in there. I look, I did, was not alive at the time. <laughs> I'm sure there were nice, nice English people uh, in Tasmania at that time. Um, but I, to me, it just did not serve a purpose in terms of, of, it just felt like what exactly what you felt, Gabe, which is it's there to just make sure that we know that there were good people who lit, who who existed back then. Um, and I think that had it been had had it had had she gone as far like if she had only the man that had invited them to stay, but like he didn't let them sit at the table, I probably would have felt a little better about it because mm-hmm. it just would have felt more true. Um, but who am I to say what's true? Because again, I didn't live then. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but to, to my, to just to my personal biases, like it just, it just rings kind of hollow to me, but it's, yes, Steve, I can also see that interpretation as well. Yeah. I'd love to go back and rewatch that scene. I'd like to say a couple things quickly before we exit the segment, if that's okay. First of all, I, where I'd like to ask really a couple of things. I, I, to me, I did think that the direction, especially the first, to the extent one can view it dispassionately for the first third of the movie maybe half of the movie is very tight it's incredibly manipulative um uh, obviously but it's also she's she's an extraordinary user of the camera in order to tell stories uh, concisely with an enormous amount of emotional wallop i mean beyond the obvious exploitative aspect of the possibly exploitative aspect of the story so i i I, that stood out i mean i i never i i was mesmerized by the film I loved both of the leads. I do think that he's incredible uh, by Kali uh, Ganambar as Billy. I I felt queasy towards the end, though, as the movie is trying in good conscience to bring these two people closer and closer together. The you know the the horribly abused Irish woman who insists on her identity as as a colonial subject of the English and the um you know, black Australian, Aboriginal Australian, who's in the process of literally watching a genocide unfold, of his people unfold before him. And it's hi- it's highly personalized to, the, to these two people and they're slowly brought closer and closer together. I mean, she's she's an unreconstructed racist when, and, and makes that plain when she discovers she has to be led through the bush by Billy. Um, and I just can't... That got... Uh, I mean... She tried to do it in such good conscience, but I gave me a little bit of a gave me a little bit of an itch. I agree with that, and I, I think her attempt to sort of create a between the two of them a kind of community of the oppressed feels manipulated. Feels as though it's it's her moving pieces around on a board. 
by contrast, uh, the internal dynamics of the soldiers, of the, the colonists on the mm -hmm. remote outpost where they're guarding these prisoners and, and exploiting these indigenous uh, laborers, it is really lovely and beautifully done. The way in which this this awful, sadistic community, military community, reproduces its own conditions of, of patriarchy and violence just feels completely real and and not manipulated at all. It, it gave me a kind of understanding into the way those sorts of oppressive systems function uh, that I thought was really useful and, and uh, 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 a very successful contrast to the way in which some of the other material sometimes feels forced. I do also, I mean, uh, I've said a lot of things about what I didn't like about the movie, but I also feel like there was a lot to really appreciate about it, including the performances. Um, and I also think that, you know, for all of the ickiness I feel about the way in which, you know, like I said, she tries to create these parallels, sort of distinct parallels between the two. I do appreciate the fact, you know, in, in one interview she gave with Alyssa Wilkinson in uh, at Vox, she talked about how um, one of the things that was important to her was to have whenever the Aboriginal characters were speaking their language, you understood what they were saying. So there are subtitles. Um, you know, she, Jennifer Kent noted that usually when you watch these types of films, the Native people or the Indigenous people are talking, but you can't understand them. And that creates a barrier and it, it creates even more of this otherism that um, is often present in movies and TV shows. So I really appreciated those little details, even when other things were kind of uh, nerve wracking to or are, are nerve wracking to contemplate. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the movie's The Nightingale. Um, go see it, but be forewarned. And we would love to know what you think about it. So email us when you have. All right. Moving on. All right, before we go any further, I'm sure we have some business to attend to. Gabriel, as you're the boss man, why don't you go ahead and uh, take that? We do have some business. Uh, so first off, in Slate Podcast business, uh, I want to let you know about an upcoming live show that The Gist with Mike Pesca is putting on at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It takes place September 16th. Uh, if you're a fan of Mike Pesca, of The Gist, or even of comedy in general, uh, you should make an effort to attend this show. Uh, Mike is going to answer the question, what is so funny about comedy anyway? He will have actual live comedians by his side to discuss ongoing changes in the business of making people laugh. He'll have Hari Kondabolu and uh, other comedians to be announced to get tickets. Slate.com slash live. $20, but less than that if you're a Slate Plus member. That's uh, the gist at the Bell House on September 16th. Slate.com slash live for tickets. Uh, on Slate Plus today, we have more to say about The Nightingale, including the somewhat confounding ending. We're going to spoil that movie for you on Slate Plus. So uh, stick around if you're a member. If you're not a member, uh, why aren't you a member yet? Sign up for Slate Plus. It's our membership program. It's a great way to support this show and all our other work. Just $35 for your first year. You get uh, no ads in any of your Slate podcasts. You get an extended version of this and many of our other most popular shows, tons of other great benefits. Uh, if you're a Culture Gab Fest fan, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, let's get back to it. I was born super abled, so says one of the soups, uh, the superheroes who populate the Amazon TV show, The Boys. The soups in this televisual universe are more than just celebrated super friends of humankind. They are IP, intellectual property. They are marketed, monetized up to their glowing superpowered eyeballs the seven 
are the seven of the best and brightest such heroes, or at least the most easily publicized, are owned outright by a private corporation, Vought International, and are by and large a group of entitled, preening, corrupt nihilists. They are, in a word, celebrities. They are opposed by a shadowy group known as The Boys. Show kicks off when Huey, an ordinary electronics store clerk, is deputized into The Boys for reasons that I will not spoil. The show is from the creators of Preacher. Let's listen to a clip. I was born super abled. Uh, my mom was thrilled. She took me to all the little Miss Hero pageants, but I hated it. Oh, I mean, I can still smell the hairspray. Uh, but <clears throat> at the Q&A, they always asked me what my wish was. And I always said to save the world. And the judges just chuckled like it was cute, but it wasn't a joke to me. Since when did hopeful and naive become the same thing? I mean, why would you get into this business if not to save the world? That's all I have ever wanted. <laughs> and that's why I've always wanted to be in the seven. All right, Gabe. Um, let me start with you. I think that this is supposed to be subversive programming. What did you? Uh, what did you make of it? Well, so first of all, we should we should contextualize. The Boys is based on a, a comic series by the, the writer Garth Ennis. He's from Northern Ireland. Uh, it came out about ten or fifteen years ago, and and that series is part of a kind of uh, history of like satirical superhero material that, that starts maybe with Watchmen or, or, or peaks with Watchmen and that, that uh, extending from there, especially writers from Britain and Ireland uh, often wanted to kind of make fun of both American superhero comics and also American culture through the medium of, of superheroes. And at the time the comic came out, I looked at it and it felt like it was a, a slightly um, decadent version of this satirical trend, that it feels over the top. It feels sometimes when when people from the British Isles are making fun of American culture, they do it in exaggerated ways that don't actually feel particularly sharp. And then watching this fairly faithful adaptation in 2019, I felt a bit like contemporary American reality has caught up with this particular dystopian satire that the the way in which the superheroes are celebrities but also just awful sadists for whom there's a kind of patina of the language of truth justice in the American way that that covers up just really depraved violent sexually perverse and awful behavior uh, it it felt as though like well yeah that is sort of what American life is like now except like now there's superpowers in this version of it uh, so I I was surprised at at how sharp it felt to me what did you guys think uh, <laughs> well I I have to admit that my I come into any of these superhero movies with a distinct. Uh, bias which is that I don't like them uh, <laughs> and so I knew going into it that I was probably not going to be completely enraptured with this story even if it was supposed to be this like very subversive deconstruction slash um, 
uh, like sort of like way to blow up the idea of like our superhero fantasies. And apparently even the creator himself, Garth Ennis, like hates superheroes, which is partially why he made this. Um, to which I say, then why did you make this about superheroes? Like, couldn't you do this a different way? Um, you know, each character uh, in this and also the comic that it's based on has a very... Um, particular analog you know there's the superman version there's the flash version version here there's the wonder woman version um and i don't know i i think i've gotten to the point now where like i i will watch these things and unless it's like black panther <laughs> i don't care <laughs> <laughs> because I don't feel like it's doing anything that different. Like, of course, we're got, we've gotten to the point now where we're going to imagine what these superheroes would be like in real life. Like Marvel's already done that itself in terms of like imagining its superheroes as being like actual superheroes that everyone knows and loves within the context of the world they've created on in the cinematic universe. So when a character, one of the superheroes who's beloved around the world, um, pulls a Louis C.K. and drops his pants in front of the new ingenue joining the team um starlight um unsuspectingly and it's like oh okay i guess i guess this is what we're doing um i don't know it just feels very on on the nose and i know like satire is kind of supposed to be like that but there there was just so much of it that like i feel i felt the superhero fatigue um was just weighing it down in terms of me thinking that any of it was like actually like useful and productive and creative yeah no i i agree with both of you i mean I so I, I felt that there was sort of a dissonance here in the satire. Let me try to explain. In the logic of the show, in the universe of the show, the satire is these horrible people get away with manslaughter because the public is so enchanted by them. In our world, the satire cuts sort of differently, and I think our world is still the real one, though I'm not always sure. But the satire there is how did we all get so sucked into these alternate you know, heroic universes? And I was trying to understand what these two satires have to do with one another like what in its totality is this show really making fun of especially if you never really got sucked Aisha like you like I never really got sucked into these universes in the first place at all why should I as a detached viewer find any you know traction in what I'm watching and I guess it's that we're living all living one way or another in an IP kingdom right that the most exploitable resource on earth is no longer oil or gold or something you drag out of the earth, but intellectual property. And we are in reality lorded over by supermen who are turning out to be nihilists. Um, I, I guess, but I just felt as though finally to me, the energy, the show can be very clever, very funny, but it's jaundice is so deep and so, you know, bilious that it seemed to me to be participating in the very thing that it was um, satirizing. I mean, it's certainly it, – we we talked about the Nightingale and whether the Nightingale was unflinching or not. And, and the boys does not flinch, at least in the first four episodes, which is what I saw. It, uh, it, it also, we should say, like the, the gore and violence in the boys uh, is – although it's in a fantasy world and so you have some distance from it, the, the actual human body – things that you see on the screen are really i was quite startled by some of those images mm -hmm. yeah me too uh yeah it's fair i mean it's very like dark doesn't even capture it as you say bilious and, and jaundiced i think is right um at, at the same time uh 
I found spending some time in in that mode where like we're not going to pretend that there's a you know that any of this is redeemable we're not going to pretend that like there's no there isn't the the good white guy character in this one and and that felt in a way like I don't know about honest but like it it was a comfortable position for me to be in for the for the extent of the 4 hours of this show that I watched let's put it that way it felt as though the america that it was that it was portraying was like what I sometimes in my darker moments think that this America is or is turning into. Well, isn't Huey kind of the good white guy character, though? <laughs> Which I think was partially what made made it difficult for me to get into was like we have two entry points. We have uh, Huey, who's um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, like because it happens in the first like 10 minutes that like part of what draws him into realizing that these superheroes are terrible is that one of the superhero characters accidentally kills his girlfriend. Um, in while... a hilarious and disgusting way, we should say. <laughs> yes, yes, in a very, yes, in a very Tarantino-esque way. Um, and, and then the other entry point is through Starlight, who is joining the Seven, like the force that's, it's kind of like the NBA or whatever. Like she, She's basically joining the, the Warriors. The Justice of, League. Yeah. Yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> I, I know nothing about sorry, superheroes. Sorry, sorry. No, <laughs> the Justice League is probably a better analogy than the Warriors. Um, uh, and so they, they're two points of entry. You get two sort of different ways because she's entering into the world from the inside and seeing how terrible it is and he's coming from the outside. Fine, that's an interesting parallel to do. But like he's uh, with his character, it just feels kind of like we're we're going back to you know Breaking Bad mode, where it's like he starts off really innocent, and I, I've only seen the first three episodes, so I don't know how it finishes. But um, he starts off innocent. He even says at one point he tells one of the characters who's trying to recruit him to the to to the uh, sort of antihero team of. Uh, Oh, I, I listen to Billy Joel. Like, I'm not a fighter. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, really? And he mentions it again later. Um, it, it, So that character and this idea that he's going to sort of like turn slowly and become more vengeful and seek, uh, seek retribution, it, to me, is just kind of old hat. And I'm way more interested. I was way more interested in the Starlight character. But even then, that just felt like we've had I, I don't want to say that this topic is not important but we've had so many of these quote-unquote me too like stories and i'm not sure the show is like well equipped enough to like handle it in a way that feels fresh and or um nuanced aisha i i i think that's right of course you're right about the two points of entry and and there being uh, the show giving you sort of sympathetic characters to hook onto in in the middle of what is often a, a kind of brutal uh and and uh completely uh, nihilistic portrayal of things and it may be that you know for it this show plays better for a viewer like me who was a comics fan as a kid and for whom there's some sort of vestigial like value in these symbols that the show is like uh, travestying and tearing down um if you're in the market i would say for a sharp and and sometimes very funny satire of superheroes in the uh alan moore and garth ennis mode um I give the boys a try i have enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would all right well it's the boys it's streaming on amazon uh check it out have an opinion and come and hurl it uh, at us uh super ably on um on twitter or via email all right moving on
Toni Morrison was the author of some of the most acclaimed novels in the American canon, now really the global literary canon, among them Song of Solomon, Sula, Beloved. She wrote her first book, The Bluest Eye, while an editor at Random House and raising two children as a single mother. She followed it up with Sula and then broke fully through into the literary mainstream with Song of Solomon. Over the course of her career, she won every conceivable honor up to and including, of course, the Nobel Prize. For many years, she was a professor at Princeton. She was a monumental public figure in this country um, in a way that possibly helps us forget that she was, above all, just an astonishing writer, a great novelist. Sarah Jackson is professor at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania, and she joins us to talk about Toni Morrison. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, am I right in thinking that in some ways Morrison is like, you know, Dickens or Shakespeare even now, that we need to return her to a human scale in order to understand the magnitude of her greatness, somewhat ironically? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that I had seen something somewhere where someone wrote early on in her career that she was the black William Faulkner. And of course, you know, she would have very much bristled at that for a a lot of reasons. Um, But she is sort of this uh, bigger than life person because she influenced so many people's careers. Her writing was so fantastic. Um, And she worked as an editor and had, you know, um, the power to really make way for a lot of particularly black and African American writers in her career. Um, And she but by all accounts, she also was just a lovely person. I mean, she was a human, she had a story, she was a child of the Great Migration, you know, grew up in Ohio, working class. And she told these stories that were actually very ordinary stories about black life um, in America, but in a way that was just so fantastic and so eloquent that she really has become, you know, this sort of legendary figure. Mm-hmm. And she did, she did take, we'll call William, William Faulkner the white Toni Morrison for the purposes exactly. of this conversation. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> but, but she did see, he did come first and she took something of the density and lyricism of his very American modernism, but then made it completely originally her own. Talk a little bit about the quality of her writing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I so I think one of the things that was absolutely groundbreaking and important about her writing was that she showed that the way that working class black, black people speak is poetic and is literary. Um, and so she didn't try to replicate the greats that had come before her, although she had read many of those greats. She wasn't trying to replicate the prose or the cadence of or the style of those greats. She was really writing in a way that was super authentic to the community she was from, to the lives she had experienced, to people in her own lives, and to lives that were really rarely acknowledged or celebrated in sort of canon literature. But at the same time, her unique, you know, cadence, wordplay, prose, tone, she had a little bit of magical realism in the way she wrote, was just so fantastic and so beautiful that when you read her writing, it's, you know, I mean, there have been, there's been this outpouring of, of folks responding to her passing. And so many figures have said that they, her, her writing brings them to tears, that they have to stop and go back and reread passages because there's lumps in their throat or because they're so inspiring. And so she really had this really important, unique style that also wasn't replicating um, sort of what was supposed to be the acceptable mainstream way of writing, but was really authentic to and honoring where she came from and the people that she was writing about. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, one of the things that was going around online uh, after her passing that I had forgotten about, but was from 
I actually don't know when the interview took place, but she's being inter- interviewed by a white journalist and the white journalist asked her, you know, it's 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 strange. I'm paraphrasing, but she's like, it's strange, right, that you don't uh, you don't really include that many white people in your stories. And, and <laughs> what do people think about that? <laughs> and Tony's Tony Morrison's response was just so it encompasses, I think, everything you're saying, which is that, like, she says, I think I don't exactly remember what Tony said, but she she used the word racist. She said, like, you have to understand how, like, that kind of thinking, how that is, like, a very, like, implicitly racist thing to say uh, mm-hmm. or to think. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that Morrison was really writing not to a white audience and to a black audience is, is I think, really different from a lot of the black authors who came before her um, as well. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, at least those that had been acknowledged, uh, as, you know, as part of the canon before her. And I mean, yeah, absolutely. That was what was so significant about what she was doing. And there's this quote, I can't remember what um, talk it came from of hers, where she said something, she says something like, you know, I stood at the edge, and I claimed that it was central, and I made the mainstream come to me, right. And so she was very much committed. And it was a part of the inherent politics of the work that she was doing, you know, in addition to the fact that she was just this foundationally amazing, inspiring, moving writer in her, her use of the English language and of prose. Um, But she also just insisted that books didn't have to be written for the white gaze, they didn't have to be written for white people, they didn't have to be about white characters. And yet that those stories could still be all the things that had been historically celebrated as canonical. Um, They could still be coming-of-age stories. They could still be intergenerational family stories. They could still be about war and conflict and poverty and wealth and, you know, all these things that are part of the canon without having to center whiteness. And, and she, she, you know, that, that, that interview that you're referencing, she's so eloquent. I mean, and that was one of the things a lot of people have talked about really admiring about her is that her response to that, that interviewer, she's completely, you know, calm and, and together. And she just says, you know, I can see that you can't understand how deeply racist your assumption is that I would need to center, you know, white characters. And, you know, the journalist you see, she takes like this gulp where you like see the, the lump in her throat mm-hmm. in that moment. And part of it is because Toni Morrison's poise um, in interviews and in, in speaking and, you know, people who have spent time with her have said she was just so... Um, poised that her prose in real life was similarly, you know, just undertaking the way that her prose and her books were in terms of just this, the statuesqueness of it. I want to ask Sarah, I think the, the consensus is, and it certainly has been my experience as a reader of her work, that Beloved, her uh, one of the novel that won the Pulitzer Prize for her, uh, is really her crowning achievement. Um, mm-hmm. Is in 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 a career that had many many great novels. Beloved is the one that sort of stands head and shoulders above the rest. I, I, I think about ten years ago, uh, the New York Times Book Review did a poll of what has been the greatest novel of the past twenty five years, and and Beloved was was the one that was mm-hmm. chosen by the most writers and critics. Um, do you think that's appropriate? Is Beloved the the standout among her? Her work? Oh, I would never. I mean, 
you know, I think there are so many of her novels. I would say, of course, Beloved is one of the most prized. And, you know, the irony of it um, winning um, the praise that it has and being named one of the most, you know, important, if not the most important American, you know, novel is that at the time that it was released, there was actually, I understand, a bit of controversy where within the literary community, folks didn't feel like it received the, the, um, level of respect that it should have and that it actually took time, right, um, for it to become this canonical text. But, I mean, she has other texts that are are just incredibly um, well, beloved as well, along with uh, beloved, which, is, you know, Song of Solomon in particular is often um, named as, as one of her most important texts. Um, you know, The Bluest Eye, although it was not um, awarded the type of prizes and, and the type of, um, uh, literary critical, critical literary response that beloved in song of Solomon was the bluest eye many people name as sort of the most influential of her novels or the one that the most people have read or have personal experiences and reactions to. Um, but all of her books, um, you know, tar baby, uh, paradise and jazz, you know, I mean, so many of them are unique. Um, but certainly I think that beloved and song of Solomon in particular are two that in literary circles are often held up as sort of the, the Toni Morrison novels to read. Well, before we wrap up the segment, and obviously there's no way that we could do complete justice to Morrison's legacy in such a short amount of time. But um, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Sarah, to talk about this was because you shared this really lovely Twitter thread last week right after her passing about your experience uh, with encountering Morrison's work and when another student encountered her work for the first time. So would you mind just sharing that with our listeners? Sure, sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit. But, you know, this was a story from, from many years ago when I was a, a student and, and in a classroom. And I, I had a friend in the classroom who was African-American but had been adopted by a white family and had grown up in a predominantly white, really um, white religious community where there was very little sort of diversity and hadn't really been exposed uh, to many um stories about black life or black American experiences. And in this particular class, uh, we, the first book we read, it was an African American literature class. And the first book that we read was in fact, the bluest eye. And there was this experience that, you know, now I'm an educator and I've had many moving and sometimes startling and sometimes difficult moments in classrooms with students where people react to content in all kinds of different ways. But to this day, this was still, you know, one of the most kind of emotional moments that I've experienced in a classroom um, where when the professor asked for responses to the bluest eye, he he raised his hand and said, you know, I, I didn't know that black people could write books and I didn't know that black people could write like this. And there was just this silence you know, in the room where he was on the verge of tears, um, sort of naming this out loud. And, um, you know, for certain people, you know, I mean, it was interesting because uh, on Twitter, I had people respond, how is that possible? You know, Toni Morrison is canonical and, you know, et cetera. But depending on your age and depending on where you went to school and where you grew up, it is very, very possible, you know, to get to college and, and never have, have read a black author. 
Um, and that, that was his experience. And, um, he, he told us that he had already read it twice, you know, and this was an assigned reading in a class and it was just such a sort of moving and unsettling experience that he very clearly was seeing something and, you know, kind of reported seeing a lot of his own life and his own experiences in this story um, that he had never really seen reflected on the page before or been able to name before. Um, and so that speaks to something, you know, beyond the fact, you know, the, the professor in that class was actually kind of asking us to engage in some literary criticism, you know, talk about the use of, you know, prose and this and that in the text. But that outside of all that, the the powerful, the, what was powerful and what is powerful about her stories is the way that they hold up a mirror um, to people's lives that often don't or might not see themselves reflected in literature. And, and particularly, you know, at the time that she was writing, that was true. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that is something that has always stuck with me now that I'm an educator, just the power that, um, you know, having texts written by black authors can have um, in the classroom um, is something that has always really stuck with me. And I think that um, there's a lot of not just writers who have been influenced by Toni Morrison, but also I think educators who have been influenced by her and sort of the ways in which she insisted on telling certain types of stories. Mm. All right. Well, Sarah Jackson, thank you so much for joining us on the show to talk about the legacy of Toni Morrison. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Thank you so much. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast uh, where we endorse Gabe. Why don't I? Why don't I start with you? Sure. Well, so this, I guess, is a follow up to our discussion of Toni Morrison. We we talked about her novels, but um, something that we didn't mention was uh, a book of literary criticism that she wrote. That's called "Playing in the Dark: Whiteness and the Literary Imagination." It came out in in nineteen ninety two, and it's really just an incredibly powerful book. I remember reading it in college and it blew my mind and I think changed my thinking about American literature and about race and its place in American culture uh, in a way that I, I think persists to this day. Um, it participates in a, a conversation with literary criticism and, and literary theory from the, the 1980s and 1990s. And, and a thing people would say about literary theorists is that they weren't good writers and they were hard to read and they were deliberately obscure. And so that's, I think, uh, not always true. And some of them were very good writers, but none of them was a writer like Toni Morrison. And the fact that Toni Morrison applied her gifts as a writer and as a reader and as a thinker about both literature and American history – uh, to the project of thinking about race in American literature and that she wrote three just beautiful, crystalline, perfect essays uh, about that subject. Uh, it's really a gift. And I think this book is not read as much as it should be outside of the university. Uh, it, if you haven't read it, uh, you should definitely read Playing in the Dark by Toni Morrison. Oh, my God. I am so psyched to check that out. Um, Aisha, what do you have? Um, I feel like this is such a late endorsement, but I finally got into Shit's Creek. <laughs> oh. I, I mean, I just, I know so many people in, I haven't watched it yet, but so many either. people in my life have said exactly what you're oh, saying, which man. is like, I, I came to it late. I didn't get it. at I, You talk, you talk, you talk. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So yes, finally started watching it um, with my fiance, Ari, like maybe two or three months ago. And we've fully caught up. We're 
almost done with season five, which is the le- the latest season. Um, the sixth season and the final season is premiering um, in the fall. But specifically, I want to endorse not just Shit's Creek, but Maura Rose's accent. Um, so Maura <laughs> Rose <laughs> plays the matriarch of the of the family that is at the center of this show. Um, essentially, at the beginning of the series, if you have not watched it yet, um, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara play a couple who, along with their adult children, um, suddenly find themselves uh, destitute because of like a bad shady deal or something that happened. They were rich. Now they're not. And they the only possession they have is this uh, this tiny podunk town called Schitt's Creek. And so it's all about them like moving there and becomes such a sweet show as it, it goes on. It kind of starts off in a sort of uh, this family could be like a arrested development uh, type family. But then as the show goes on, they be- they get very sweet and nice. And there's just a lot of great moments and moments that actually have made me tear up. Um, but specifically, Mora is a character who she was like a, for- a former soap opera star. And uh, she <laughs> she has all of these wigs that are just like hanging in their hotel room they still live in a hotel in Schitt's Creek um and she has this amazing this amazing accent that is like indecipherable I don't know what it is it's like I think that Catherine O'Hara might have just made it up um but there are certain words and phrases that she always says the same way and like no one says like baby like for baby (laughs) it's just it's so great so Schitt's Creek but also Maura Rose's accent which is just delightful and amazing and gets uh better as the show goes on oh i'm so psyched (laughs) to catch up to your catching up i i i i keep hearing this about schitt's creek the time has come uh and then maybe finally we can do it on the show and have aisha have you back to talk about it Um, yeah uh i have endorsed some weird unexpected stuff over the course of the year many years of doing this show but i think this one's going to take it even further into outer space but this past weekend i did something for the very very first time in my life and you will never guess what it was i shaved my labradoodle (laughs) (laughs) you're right i wouldn't have guessed that and so this is this is a double endorsement, which is Are Labradoodles supposed to be shaved? Well, so <laughs> I shaved my Labradoodle a euphemism for something, Steve. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of merriment in my household this weekend with our guests about that, Gabe. And I think for the purposes of keeping the FCC off of the podcasting beat, we want to like not get into what it might be a euphemism for. But in this instance, it is just totally a hundred percent literal no metaphor value here at all it's so my dog it does get is he's a black labradoodle he gets extremely long shaggy curly hair that over the summer is oppressively hot for him and our uh we we once a year we got him trimmed and groomed like pretty far down like down to an eighth or a quarter of an inch uh and then over the course of the summer he gains back his coat by the time october november rolls around he's at full length and the cycle of life continues year after year our groomer moved to florida no such option this year the fuzzy butts the local groomer here is called fuzzy butts uh the one that everyone uses and they've got like a like literally a months long waiting list it's like trying to go to babo back in the day or something and so i had to finally do it myself and a friend of mine was heading to walmart i said look pick, pick up whatever it looks like you shave a dog with 
and she came back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's my double endorsement. The first is, it turns out, with the right dog and the right owner, it is the most loving, painstaking, therapeutic, zen activity you could possibly do because you know dogs in the summer my dog goes into ponds and creeks and gets all mucked up and gets burrs and yes we comb them and we keep them and we shampoo them and on and on and on but there's something about like shaving away this excess fur that you know that they want to get rid of and it comes off in these like almost like cotton candy like tufts uh and you you're leaving behind this sort of beautifully combed trimmed short coat and um it's almost like the dog is into it too not to project too much onto the onto the doodle and uh and it it just it's like you know it's like the difference between going to a supermarket and buying a tomato and like planting the seed and watching it grow and on and on anyway, it's, it's like in, 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 <laughs> i have no idea why you're laughing artisanal and, dog grooming it's very beautiful I mean, it, just, it was really amazing but then here's the other part of the endorsement even more improbably i'm reading the instructions for this quite heavy industrially beautifully machined device the clipper right the dog grooming clipper and i'm like i look up from i'm like who the fuck wrote these instructions like henry james <laughs> they're, they're they're so they're so beautifully exquisitely crafted sentences describing how you prepare the canine you know where best to do it how exactly you go about it i mean it was they were it was and i was like i looked up and i swear to god this is true i said this is a privately held small company and i go to the internet and it turns out wall w-a-h-l is the inventor of the electric clipper they're essentially Leo Wall or Jacob Wall, I can't remember, in 100 years ago, invented the first electric clipper. It has stayed a privately held family company in the 100 years since. And the product is so beautifully made. It's the, it's like the last thing that you pick up, industrially machined thing that you pick up is, and is heavier than you expect it to be in your hand. You can tell it's going to last 50 years. And the I, I, I have to tell you, it's just like the whole experience was about the happiest thing that's happened to me in five <laughs> or 10 years. No disrespect to my wife and children. I mean, it's like, it's just, anyway, I know you're all ready to like dial 911 and have me carted off, but this is like, I'm just telling you, you got, if, and they have uh, shaving out uh, rigs for, for men, for women, for humans, for horses. God knows probably for pigs too, but dogs as well. But shave your own dog. That's my endorsement and I'm sticking by it. My dog hates to be shaved. <laughs> she have you shaved? Yeah, she have, squirms everywhere. It's but have you have you DIY'd it though? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh you've shaved gosh. your own labradoodle. Yes, <laughs> I, she's not a labradoodle, but her hair goes every which way because she's a mutt. Uh, oh. And uh, the the type of mutt that we don't know what she is, but um, yeah, she does not like it. She's very uncomfortable, and but she also doesn't like a lot of things, like our uh, electric vacuum cleaner. Did uh, you use <laughs> Did you use a wall pet grooming <laughs> handheld clipper device? I don't think it is a wall. Mm -hmm. It's okay, very fancy. Well. It comes in a case and everything, and there's little Ooh. you know scissors and comb, but. 
maybe we gotta get a wall. <laughs> yeah, gotta get a wall. <laughs> I'm I'm looking at their beard trimmers on the internet right now. I'm thinking I'm gonna pick up one of these and I'm oh, gonna read the instructions very carefully and and see if we can identify like a sing if there's a single authorial voice among the do- the <laughs> dog instructions and the beard instructions, or if it's a, a kind of corporate process that produces these things. Oh, no corporate process produced those those densely lyrical Toni Morrison-esque sentences, please. <laughs> All right. Well, we've taken this so far over the top. There may be no landing this ship, but uh, Aisha, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was just, as always, a total pleasure. Thank you. Gabe, love having the boss man's uh, foot on my forehead. Just uh, reminds me of old times. Always happy to stomp, Steve. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love interacting with you on Twitter. We have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. We do really love getting emails. Uh, We don't have a production assistant this week, um, but uh, a shout out to Alex Barish, who effectively was this week's production assistant. We're looking for a new one. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Uh, For Aisha Harrison, um, Gabriel Roth. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.